Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hello, Caviar Dreamers. I'm Margaret Josephs. And I'm Lexi Buffuto. And every week we are bringing you entrepreneur real stories from leaders, disruptors, change makers, and risk takers. We may not be serious, but we seriously mean business. We are back reporting live from the sofa. We're back and reporting, and I'm so excited because we have on someone who I absolutely adore. And she is a reporter herself. She reports the news. She's a journalist, and she wrote a book. And I know her since she went to the prom with one of my sons. Since she's 17 years old, we had the fabulous Jen Maxfield. We do. And I love that you guys have such a history. I know. And you've been able to watch her career literally play out before you on NBC local news since since she started. I know. You do, I know so long. I, do I know her since she was 17, turned 18, and I was 28 20, and 28, and then I turned 29, and, and she, you know, then I had a baby. Wild. She was, you know, she came to see me in the hospital when I had a baby. Isn't this wild? It's absolutely insane. But I knew she was going to college to be pre-med, though I was somehow convinced. I thought she, I knew she was going to be a reporter, but. Maybe you had ESP. Maybe I had ESP, but she was, she went to Columbia undergrad and yes, and the rest is history. I was so happy when I saw her on the news and Jan and I would talk about it all the time, how, how excited we were when we would see her. I felt, you know. She's so proud, but she's she achieved all her goals and more. She did. And I love that she wrote this book more after the break. And she's going to tell us more about that today because she went back to 10 of the most prominent stories in her career. Those stories that left her with like, well, what did ever happen to them? Like once the cameras stopped rolling, once the live news truck, you know, drives away, like what happened to that family? What happened to that person? How did this story progress? How did it? Because even though the truck drives away, that person's story doesn't end. Exactly. Don't you ever want to know just when you're watching TV, the news, what happened to that person? Well, even today I said to you, do you remember the story of the guy who received a text message from a grandma, not his grandma. Hey, Thanksgiving will be at this time at my house. And he responded like, hey, yeah, I'm going to come. You're not my grandma, but I'm going to come. And they now are spending their seventh Thanksgiving together. And it just shows that like 
these stories don't end. It was a good news story then. And seven years later, it's an even better news story. I know. So what I love is that she's interviewed like something like 10,000 people, but these are the 10 stories that she followed up on and she wrote a book about it more after the break. So I'm so excited to have on my dear friend, Jen Maxfield. I am so, okay. I'm so excited to have you on because first of all, I know you since you're like 17 years old. And I've known you since you were 20-something years old. Yeah, 29. I was pregnant in 29, which is ridiculous. That's crazy. I know. Insane. We go way back, and I remember being a senior in high school and thinking that you were so cool. And then I wanted to be like you. That that makes me very happy. And I really did look up to you. You were a very early influence of like a powerful woman. Oh, I love that. Aww. Thank you. That's so sweet. And I mean, you were the most gorgeous, glamorous young woman, amazing, the, the older hot girlfriend, only one year, obviously, only a grade ahead, not really older, of my fabulous son. And that, and you were going off to school pre-med. Yes, that's right. right? I, I was just writing for the school paper. I didn't think it would really be a job one day. Okay. So then what made you decide to go into to news? Okay, so sort of like you, definitely a real extrovert. I love being around people. I love meeting new people, love knowing what's going on. And so I always wrote, like I said, I wrote for the school paper because it was fun. There was a reason to ask everybody a bunch of questions. So anyway, but I, I thought I was going to be a doctor. But then I went to school at Columbia. So I was in New York City and I saw a listing for an internship for CNN at the United Nations. And I sort of on a whim applied for it and I loved it. And I was paired with Gary Tuckman, amazing CNN correspondent. And that was then I switched out of my math and science classes and started majoring in political science. And I, I wound up going to Binghamton, New York, market number 154 for my first time. <laughs> We're from a very metropolitan area. You're from a metropolitan area right outside New York City. You're like, oh my God, I have to move to Binghamton. There was a lot of oh my God moments because in the first place, even though it's the 154th largest media market in the country, it was so hard to get that job. I had to send out 65 VHS tapes. Now a single news director called me back, not one. And the Binghamton- Out of 65? 65. And by the way, it wasn't like I was applying in New York and LA. I knew enough to not do that on the first job. But yeah, so then I wound up taking a road trip and I went up to Binghamton, New York. It's about three hours north of New York City, where I was living at the time. And I just asked the news director for five minutes of his time. And he met with me and offered me the job. And the job not only entailed leaving my family and my friends and my college boyfriend, who's now my husband, I left all of them behind in New York and New Jersey. I didn't know a single person in Binghamton. And the job paid so little that first year that I could not afford a cell phone. Okay. That, I mean, that's crazy. Who would even think that? Because you would think people are on the news, even though it's the 154th market, whatever market you think like you're doing well, people see, you know, people on TV reporting the news and they're thinking like, wow, they're making a killing. I wish that was me. Oh, no. I mean, especially in a starter market like that, it's like minor league baseball. So you have to start in the smaller communities and then you hope that you work your way up to the bigger cities. But no, I was the lead anchor 
Monday through Friday, and I could not afford a cell phone. That is, oh my god that's wild. actually that's terrible that's it not is. right i mean were your parents like okay maybe you better stick with med school oh, yeah i think my parents are always very supportive i think they were concerned especially because i had gone to columbia undergrad i had a master's degree now i'm living by myself in a community where i didn't know anybody and i can't afford a cell phone so there were there were maybe some concerns there but i think they also understood but that's just how the business works. And they had confidence in me, which gave me the confidence to believe that that wasn't going to be the case always, that I was paying my dues and, you know, trying to buy food on sale or whatever I had to do at that time just to get through those couple of years when I was small market news before I came to New York. I think an experience like that must have really helped you prepare for what was to come. Because after reading the book, obviously, and going through the stories, you have witnessed some incredible things that take strength to actually report on. I think that was part of it. And I also think, let's face it, I've been living in New Jersey, right outside New York. I spent five years at an Ivy League institution in New York City. I don't think it was such a bad thing for me to go to a different community and experience making very little money in the beginning and sort of feeling like I had a broader perspective on life and just what people are going through generally. And so I do think that that experience, even of moving somewhere to a community where you don't know a single other person and having to make friends as an adult, I think that all of that really led to me building up to who I am today and, and just being a person who was genuinely interested not only in telling other people's stories, but really in stepping into other people's shoes. A question I have is, was it hard for you reporting the news and not being biased? Because it's hard, I think, you know, when people look at a, a news reporter and it's just, you're human, right? And everyone has feelings. And when we watch the news, we're like, ah, oh my God, you know, how, how do you keep that so you come across as just reporting the news. Because I do watch you and you come across and, you know, you could be sad about something or whatever it is, but it is, it's a job, right? And you have to report the facts. Yes. And I also am very mindful that the story is not about. So of course, I'm a human being. I have opinions. I might agree or disagree with things. My top priority, of course, is putting an accurate story on the air, right? I want the truth. But even as you know, if you have all the facts, you're going to have an opinion one way or the other on, on all kinds of things. But I just keep in mind that the story is not about me. The story is about the people who are actually involved in what's happening. So whether it's expressing an opinion or even if I was, let's say, crying while reporting a news story, believe me, there are many times when I may be interviewing somebody and I'm on the other side of the camera and I might have tears coming down my face because of what somebody's saying. But for me to be actually, you know, emoting and, and crying live on camera, I feel like that's making the story more about me, which, which is distracting and takes away from the story about the people. But in my book, I, I did want to get across the message that, look, I'm not a news robot. None of us are. We're not just walking around with the microphone and asking people questions and the whole day is in one ear and out the other. I mean, these stories really do 
stay with them and people make Touch an you. impact on them for a long time. And that's why I wanted to go back to them in the book. You had so many amazing stories. So then these are the t- 10 stories that really touch your life, which I love your book more after the break. And these are the stories that you wrote, you wrote about, which I so exciting that you wrote a book. What was it at this point in your life that you were like, I have to get this out? I've been thinking about the idea for a while because whether it was viewers or even I teach at Columbia Journalism School now, and even my students started saying, why doesn't the news ever follow up on stories, right? Do you ever get that where you're watching a news story and you're so engaged with something and you can't read enough about it? Yes. And then one day, no one's talking about it anymore. And that's it. What happened to those people? So that was part of it, just that genuine curiosity. And that, yeah, I wanted to give people a behind the scenes look at the news business and what it's like being a journalist out on tight deadlines knocking on people's doors and and trying to get them to share their stories with us. I mean, I always say I don't interview celebrities, nothing set up ahead of time. People don't wake up in the morning thinking that they're going to be talking to me on TV that evening. Usually they're thrust into the spotlight due to circumstances they can't even control. So I and and part of it too was Really, I just felt like I wanted to reconnect with the families. And maybe it was something about writing the book during COVID. But I was genuinely interested in knowing not only what happened to them specifically in their lives, but also just what it's like for someone to be in the media spotlight for a period of time and then to go back to their life. And it's not the same as what it was before. Have you ever been in a situation where like, you know, your news team has been like, you've got to go out, you've got to report on this. And you felt like compromised. Like, how do I deliver this person's story? Like, cause anyone ever said like, I don't want, you know, I don't want to talk to you. And you've had to push the envelope. That does happen. I mean, I'm always astonished at how many people do say yes to us when we come knocking on their door or approaching them at the scene with the microphone, but people do say no. And, and we totally respect that. As I said, sometimes I'm with people on the best day of their life, worst day of their life, the most chaotic day of their life. So I get it why somebody might not want to talk to me in those moments. But more people than not, in fact, way more people than not, do choose to talk to journalists, I think, because they want the most accurate version of their story out there. And maybe even because there's something cathartic about sharing your story and and telling your truth. I mean, you see so much insanity. I mean, when you read the stories in the book, I was saying to Margaret before, you know, like we we hear the news and all of a sudden you don't feel safe or you feel like, you know, oh my God, what if that happened to me? You literally see unbelievable things on a daily basis. How do you wake up in the morning, stay optimistic, stay positive, like don't look over your shoulder every two minutes that something yes. crazy is going to happen? Because you literally live the impossible every day. I I know what you mean. I think I was typically an optimistic person to begin with. And amazingly, after 22 years in news, I still am. For as many bad situations that we report on in the news, I'm always looking for that silver lining, so to speak. I, if we're doing a story about a terrible fire that destroyed somebody's house, I'm looking for the firefighter who rescued the toddler from the second story window. I want to tell you, that story. I, I want to tell good. you about yes. the yes. Samaritan who stepped in and saved somebody. Or I want to tell you about 
this terrible thing that happened and now the law has been changed because of it. So I, that, that's sort of what I'm looking for. The other thing that because I've interviewed more than 10,000 people over the last 22 years, and I've gone to thousands of homes and businesses and communities, news scenes, I think I, I sort of feel that having met all these people and, and experienced all these individuals and, and the interesting aspects of their lives, I don't view things anymore as, oh, you know, I'm going there late at night, so that will be dangerous. Or, oh, this is a beautiful town and we'll definitely be safe there because I've typically been wrong in both of those assumptions. And so, and, and truly the kindness that people have shown us in every neighborhood, in every community over all of these years has been amazing. I mean, when you see us out reporting on a snowstorm, and we're getting battered in the face with the I know. Um, <laughs> I've, well, I've seen that happen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> then then people will come out of their homes and offer us, need a bathroom? Do you want to pop coffee? What can we do? I mean, it's amazing. And I guess part of that is having reported on the same community for the last 20 years. People feel like they know us. They do. They look to you to tell them what's going on in the world. They look to you for safety. What's happening? What is Jen Maxfield going to say today. I do say when I see you on the news, it's like a familiar face, like a family. Well, for me, it definitely feels like a family member, <laughs> but I think people it's comforting. And I think you bring a lot of comfort into people's lives. Uh, we were going to ask you about a, a story that touched Lexi and I about the story about Tamika, oh. which was, you know, hard to read, very emotional because that must've been very hard for you, obviously to cover and then follow up with her. So could, could you tell us a little bit about that and everybody who's listening? Because that story obviously touched you because it's in your book. Absolutely. So as I said, I've done more than 10,000 interviews and Tanika's always stood out in my mind. My mind returned to her a lot. And to, to explain the story, back in March of 2012, Tamika Tompkins, who was living in East Orange, New Jersey at the time, was stabbed. 27 times by her ex-boyfriend against whom she had a restraining order. So she had tried everything she possibly could to protect herself and her two young daughters at the time. One was just six weeks old and the other was two. And miraculously, she survived this horrible domestic violence attack. And I wound up interviewing her in the ICU unit at University Hospital in Newark, where we were invited in by Tanika and her family tell her story in part because she was so furious that she had tried to protect herself and her family from this man and the system, this restraining order just didn't work. And I, I write about it in the book and I still tell Tanika all the time and, and we're still in touch and we're actually doing events now uh, 10 years later for organizations that support victims of domestic violence. And I always tell her how brave I thought that decision was for her to make the choice to go on television to tell her story. And I'll say, why did you decide to do that just three days after surviving this horrible attack? And she said, I wanted people to see what could happen. I wanted people to see how bad it could get so that other people, other women would get out of abusive relationships before it reached that point. And I, I just think that's so brave and selfless, right? For her to put the needs of the broader community above her own comfort. And I really admire that about her. 
I think especially in Tamika's situation, because when you read her story, like I was tearing up reading it, like the people that should have loved her the most were the ones who failed him. Yeah, like, her I'm mother, now. Like, her, her, mo- yes, her like, mother wound up calling the police on her and she wound up in jail. Right. For a little while. Right. It was so backwards, right? That's the time when she should have been. Yes, it's so, recovering it was so, and, it was and so getting, terrible. Yeah, awful. And, and I didn't even know that aspect the story until we reconnected. But people are amazing. I mean, a lot of people have read my book and feel it's actually very inspiring and full. And and look at somebody like Barry. Tamika, who's been through sort of the worst of what life's had to offer. But you know what? Her kids are thriving. She's doing well. She's living independently. She does have some mobility issues as a result of all the injuries that she suffered. But her kids are amazing. They're really sweet and they're all doing well in school. And I just think that she's a great mom and a really, really brave woman and someone who I admire a lot. I mean, her resilience Absolutely. is remarkable. And I think I'm sure you've seen the resilience of the human spirit along the way. And I think that's what probably helps you keep going. Tell me what you would tell a young journalist now. Uh, something that you've learned along the way that you wish you would have known? So a couple things. The the first thing I would say is just that you have to put the people first, right? I never look at people as just an interview or this is just part of my job. I think that obviously you can't be putting yourself in people's shoes to the extent where you no longer can emotionally do your job, right? But I do think that you have to put your heart into the work. And that the stories that I tell and the stories that the community watches are better because I my part into the work. And then sort of the other issue that would that I would tell my younger self and, and something that applies to whatever job you're in is to network. My instinct, and I think a lot of young women's instincts, is to do your very best at what needs to be done now. Right. I don't think I was looking enough in my 20s. It's sort of what do I want my career to look like in five years or in 10 years? And how can I seek out mentors and even colleagues at competing stations who can sort of guide me in getting to where I want to go? That's incredible advice. Yeah. My non-profound answer to the question of what would I tell my younger self is stop plucking your eyebrows because they won't grow back. <laughs> well, we have no eyebrow well, we, pencil I mean, on, so, so you can see we need that advice. First of all, our hair is so too. bleached out and our <laughs> eyebrows. I mean, I had to microblade them and fill uh, them in and all the craziness. Do you look back at like years ago yourself and you're like, what the hell was I wearing? What was I thinking? Oh. Ever? Like, are there like the fashion moments where you're like, oh my God? Well, first of all, I had no money to spend on clothes when I was starting out in the business. I used to go to the Tahari outlet and try to get suits that were on sale at the outlet. So I wasn't exactly shopping for high fashion. And then I think there was something too about, I don't know if it was early 2000 or if it was just me, but the fa- I think, and, and a few of my other female journalist colleagues were saying the same thing the other day. We think we looked older 20 years ago because we were trying oh, to look sure, for sure. We wanted to cut our hair and we wore like we put, collared shirt. We'd put a blazer on top and then pop the collar out. We'd wear these big shoulder pads. I mean, it's bad. I don't think I'm that old until I look back at those pictures 
<laughs> and I realized that was a long time ago. I know. I, it's funny. I mean, well, I definitely looked older because I didn't have a facelift. So that's a, <laughs> that, that, but that's okay. I mean, yeah, fashion years ago, something was screwy. Everybody. Well, it, it's funny because I remember going to like an interview at fashion school in London and I, I wanted to wear a business suit to seem professional. And yet I was going for a creative interview. You know, there was something that women in the 80s, 90s, you had to dress the powerful part, which is crazy because the most power you have is to be yourself. Exactly. That's exactly right. And then, but within a few years, and and I did this especially when I was pregnant, because don't forget, I, I was pregnant three times. I had three kids. So I was yes. pregnant three times in four years. And so here I, you know, I'd show up on the news and I'd be in maternity outfits. And, you know, I was reporting on stores. I could barely zip up the parka because my <laughs> belly was so big. But I did always feel like it was good to represent for working moms on TV because I've had the disability yes. of being out there. And yes, of course, I wanted people to understand about the storm or the heat wave or whatever crisis we were reporting on. But I didn't mind that they also noticed that it was a pregnant woman telling them the news. People always will ask us about mom guilt because I always mm-hmm. say I get a lot of flack for this because yeah. I people are like you're against stay at home mothers. I'm like, I'm not against stay at home mothers. I think people always give me grief because they're like, you worked when your kids, you weren't about your kids, which pisses me off because yes. I was about my kids. I put my family first lot. But, you know, you can't do everything 100 percent. Right, Jen? That's what I always say. You know, something s- sacrifices at different times. You do the best you can. How do you deal? Did you ever have mom guilt? Oh, I definitely did. But one of the things that I learned a long time ago that that is super helpful, and I hope that everyone takes away from this, is to stop trying to be perfect and to stop trying to get everything right all the time. Okay, I'm in live TV. So obviously, I'm not getting everything right on the news all the time. I stumble. I'm human, right? So I kind of take some of that into my whole life, too. And look, this this is what I want to do. I enjoy doing this. I get a lot of fulfillment out of whether it's reporting the news or writing the book or teaching at Columbia. And my family understands that. And I think there is some buy-in in the family because, look, when it snows out, the other moms might be home making snowmen with the kids because they're off for work that day. I'm out standing in the store. And so my kids understand that. It's always been this way because I've worked since they were born. I was also raised by a day-at-home mom. So again, I don't try to aspire to perfection. I know that some days I'll do a great job at work and not such a great job at home. And other days I'll do an amazing job as a mom and mess something up at work. And that's that's just the way it is. I love that. And I think also you were saying before, like you have my bravery and someone else, I think it's very brave also to show your kids, like there is a storm, my mommy's going out there, you know, that is like a, a difficult situation at, you know, a neighborhood that might not be so great. Like, and you're the first one that on the scene, like it, that's an amazing level of bravery to set an example for your kids. And also that you're a happy, fulfilled human. Because I think it's important for our kids to see us happy, fulfilled, and living our dreams. Yeah. Yes, and I and I hope that I have two daughters and a son, and I hope that they all go out into the world and with that same spirit, and I hope that they seek out partners who also have that, that same spirit of wanting to follow their dreams. And 
Look, one of the big things I teach my kids is don't sit on the sideline, get out there and get involved. And actually all these years, right, I've been the one running out toward the crime scene or the weather event. And it's, I didn't realize how hard it was to be the person at home while your family member goes out to do that until in March, my husband and son went to Poland and Ukraine three weeks after Putin invaded and they were helping women and children at the Poland-Ukraine border and bringing medical supplies into Ukraine as part of a mission with our synagogue. So I do feel that some of this spirit has, has sort of rubbed off on my kids. I don't know if I meant it exactly to the extent of my 15-year-old son That's... going to Ukraine. <laughs> but yeah, I was, I was very happy when they were home, but I was very proud of them for doing what they did that, and standing up for what's right. I mean, I know Beyond that they did incredible. that. That is incredible. I mean, that's such... I can't believe that they did that. And that's so selfless and so helpful. And I mean, that speaks to who your family is. So that's unbelievably amazing. Sometimes I think when you look at it as so big, it makes it hard to feel like you can do anything. And so then when there was this opportunity through our synagogue for my husband and son to buy thousands of diapers and fly them over and give them out, it was like, okay, well, I can't stop the war, but I can help these people. And here's something I can do. And like I said, those are the kind of stories I've been wanting to tell for the last two decades, right? Looking at people and the amazing things that they can do. That's so inspiring. That is so inspiring. So tell me, what do you see yourself doing next? I mean, you've done so much already. Is there something you want to do that you haven't achieved because you've achieved so much? Well, I really did enjoy the process of writing the book. And I've been on the book tour for a couple months now, and it's been so great having these conversations with people and People are really engaged in the news. So I, I am still working for NBC in New York. Yeah. People can still watch me there. And I haven't started writing another book, but maybe it's something that I'll want to do one of these days. And and I always love working with students. So I have students at Columbia Journalism School. And then after they graduate, I continue mentoring them through their first and second. And now some of them going on to their third jobs. So that's also something gives me a lot of joy is being a mentor. And also I learned a lot from them. They're mentoring me too. I always say that. It's so yeah. important to have a mentor. Did you have a mentor? I did. I mean, I would count Gary Tucker from CNN as the first mentor. I don't think I did enough networking and I when I was here. I've noticed, and, and if there are young women listening to podcasts, which I'm sure there are a lot of, I've had interns and certainly students of mine. And I always say, Keep in touch, email me, call me. And and actually, very few people actually do that. But I truly think that the majority of people actually love mentoring younger people and feeling like they're having an impact and making a difference. So I would tell young people to, to get outside your comfort zone, make that connection, see if there's someone you can connect with who's 5, 10, 15, 20 years ahead of you in the career that you want. And then... One day the table will turn and you'll be a mentor as well. And that's how you pay it forward. It's so true. I always say I'm much more accessible than you think I am. I mean, that's how everybody's really worked for me. It's so funny because they're like, oh my God. I'm like, yeah, just email me. Just call, you know, just call. And I, and I, yeah, come for coffee. I want to help you. I I don't need anything. Everyone's like, can I do something? I'm like, no, you don't need to help me do anything. Just do 
something for someone else. So everybody who comes on the podcast, we ask them three questions. So one of the questions is, what do you feel your big girl panty moment, your sink or swim moment? Like, oh my God, this, if I don't do this, it's going to break defines me. Define, you know, defines you. Well, my first live shot in the New York market in October 2002 might have been the first of those moments. And actually, probably the biggest sink or swim moment was when I was 28 and I was assigned to go cover the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina in Mississippi. Now, a state, by the way, that I had never even visited before. And now here I am going to the worst hurricane in American history to a place that has been decimated, right? And everybody there is suffering in one way or the other. It's my first big travel assignment for Eyewitness News in New York at the time. And I really had to step it up in every imaginable aspect, right? Whether it was just how to tell the story on the news get everybody back at home in New York and New Jersey to be engaged with what was happening in Mississippi and to step up to help. And also just to live in that situation, right? We're in the same circumstances that people were reporting on. We had power, water. We didn't even have a hotel room the first night. We didn't have, we had to eat those little orange cheese crackers with the peanut butter on the inside. I mean, oh, yes, was, yes, yeah, yes. It was rough. And, and we knew the whole time that we would get to go home. Right. So we weren't, we didn't have it nearly as badly as people, actual homes were destroyed. But at age 28, I did feel a lot of responsibility on that. And I actually returned to those stories in chapter two of my book. And what was amazing to me was that people who I had interviewed outside the wreckage of their home back in 2005, all these years later, they remembered talking to. And they remembered our conversation and what's happening. And I, I mean, I had been thinking about them for all those years, but I wonder sometimes do we sort of fade away with that negative memory? But I guess we don't. And I, I do think that while people change us, we make an impact also. Oh, you touched their life as well, that you cared and you were there yeah. and at the at the hardest time in their life. That's yeah, that- you provided them an opportunity to share their story and build awareness to, to their needs. And hopefully to encourage that's, people to I know. mean, that's a very poignant big girl panic yeah, moment. Very. very we also ask people, what would you accredit your success to? Like we always say Marge's percentages, like 50% delusional to 50% determined. How would you say your percentage is like She's all determined. <laughs> <laughs> no, you have to be a little delusional to believe that you can actually For sure. put together a story on an, in eight hours at the boat on these really tight deadlines. Somehow we do Get it done every day, though. So I would, I would say the determination is a, a big piece in my life. And certainly the experience bailing out those 65 BHS tapes and getting not a single call back, right? Nobody was interested in hiring me for their station. And I tell this story a lot because I think that it's great when you, someone gives me this beautiful introduction and about, you know, like, I did this and I won that and that's all amazing. But I really believe you learn more from your failures than your successes. And that experience of having to go outside my own comfort zone and believe in myself, nobody else believed that I could or should be doing the job. And to just continue on and put those blinders on and say, 
I am going to do this and I'm just going to figure out another way. The 65 tapes that I put in the mail didn't work or getting in the car and calling the one to get there. And so it was, I think that the determination has been a big one the whole time. And I would also say, it's not like now nobody tells me no. Do you know how many times I was told no writing this book? And the publisher is not interested. The literary agent's not interested. This bookstore is not interested in you coming for a signing. They've chosen somebody else Ooh. for this book festival. It's constant. I'm just used to it now. And I've built up those emotional calluses. I no longer feel personally offended when somebody says no to me. And to tell you the truth, if someone's not saying no to me, I think that maybe I'm not challenging myself enough. And once you can stop being so worried about getting rejected, you can really do think the sky's the limit because then you, you just start being able to think freely and not worry about what other people think. That is great advice. And I that think is. a quick no is great because a quick no means you can move on and find the next yes. It's true. I know. I think people get so offended and when they get turned down, it stops them. It paralyzes them and they and they can't move forward. I mean, we've been told been told no sometimes yeah. and you're not going to succeed at something. But I think, you know, we're that's optimistic. That's when the delusion kicks in. Yeah, that's in. when the delusion kicks in. I'm like, oh, what are you, crazy? Of course we're doing this. Watch I mean, us. Yes. I think, you know, you answered this question before about your most real advice. So I think I don't even have to ask you that again. But if you want to sum it up like in a soundbite, what do you think the most real advice you could give someone, the most entrepreneur real advice? To believe in yourself and to cut out the noise and not listen to other people's negative opinions or even to not let somebody else not giving you exactly what you want to determine your path. You determine your path and you have to believe in yourself. I love it. I mean, seriously, you're like just a superstar. I mean, you're like therapy, right? Yeah, I know. And just this listening to you so... so therapeutic, the best advice ever. I just want, I do want to ask one question. Whose career do you really admire? What female journalist do you really admire the most? Do you feel? I, I'm sure you have a few. I do have a few, but I would, I would definitely shout out Judy Woodruff, who is just retiring now and, and such a woman of substance. She's always been out there quietly determined. She's been at the center of, you know, she's, she's been really a primary female journalist, whether it's moderating a debate or being the lead of the newscast, being on scene at a lot of different, it's just absolutely an, an amazing woman. And she actually just retired. Um, so I, I, I really do admire her. And of course, Barbara Walters and Diane Sawyer really leading the way for, for women in journalism. And they broke through a lot of this feeling before. And look, Let's face it, we actually just celebrated my mother-in-law's birthday the other day, and she's a scientist, and she will tell me sometimes how when she was interviewing for jobs in academia back in the late 60s, she used to have to take her wedding ring off so that people wouldn't decide to not hire her because they thought, oh, well, she's not going to stay here long. She's not a serious candidate because she's married. And so I think every woman who's put herself and her ideas out there has paved the way in some way for every other woman who comes after. And, and I hope that, you know, even something like me reporting on a storm, super pregnant and, and being out there to show other people what women do, I do, or me asking the first question at a televised news conference and hearing a woman's voice as the first question to ask. I hope that those small things 
make a difference too for for the next generation, which includes my oh, two you daughters. Have, they do. You have so paved the way for so many women, and I think everybody so looks up to you. It's amazing. The, I mean, seriously, uh, you paved the way for me. I mean, yeah. I, I, I'm impressed every single day. It's unbelievable. Well, I so would say I you paved thank- the way for me because I, like I said, oh, I, that's so that's so sweet. I remember <laughs> meeting you, you and and just thinking, look at this powerful woman who states her opinions and is obviously a career woman who's having a lot of success. So I thank you. Jen, but you're, uh, seriously, I mean, when I just see you, I always say, you know, I, ha- I hate to say it every time I see you, I could start crying. I always go, you know, that was my son's girlfriend. <laughs> I'm like, you know, I knew her. I knew her a long time ago. She sleep in my house. <laughs> like, well, thank you so much. I just want to say, everybody, go buy More After the Break by Jen Maxfield. The book touches your soul. It's so impressive. She follows up on the most amazing stories. But tell everybody where they could find you. Oh, so the easiest way to find me is at my website, which is jennaxfield.com. And there are links to buy the book and a little bit about me. I put a lot of news clips there, stories that I'm working on for NBC New York. And it's just, it's just been such a pleasure. It's And they can watch you, uh, you, you know, the great and, and they can watch you reporting the news. Yes, of course. You never know where I might show up. I might be knocking on your door next. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This Thanks, was so Jen. amazing. Thanks, Jen. My pleasure. Thank you. Wow. Wow. She is so therapeutic. I feel like I've learned so much from her. That was such a compelling episode for me. Like, I see why people don't freak out when she comes to the door yeah, and would, like share their story. Me too. I would share any story with her that she wants to know. Me too. I was mesmerized as she was speaking. And I loved so much of her advice for young women, especially like the projections of your career. Like, what are your five-year goals? I do feel like it was like, you know, sometimes when you're talking to a guest and then all of a sudden you go, you think, oh God, that resonates so hard with me. Exactly. When she said, we think about what we have to do now. But I think as women, we are so focused on putting out the little fires that we don't necessarily treat our career the way a lot of men do, which is five, 10-year goals, networking, strategizing our career. Like she said, we don't network enough. And we don't reach out to mentors enough. You think you're bothering someone. You're not. We have to follow up. You're not an ad. It's very important in life. So I do feel like that. Networking is one of the most important things, connections, getting involved. I just, she gave the best advice ever. I love the thing she said about mom guilt. Yeah. Because I think so many women do have mom guilt. And she was also an amazing representation, literally being out in the storm, pregnant when her puffer coat wouldn't close, you know, like that's an amazing representation of, Hey, you can have a career, but you also, you know, that it showed there was sacrifices, but also that those sacrifices pay off. So you could have the career that you want. It's true. Now, if you hear any drilling in the background, Oy. that is Joe Benigno because he has a career as a contractor and he's finally putting it to work doing, <laughs> doing my bathroom. And he doesn't seem to care that we're recording an episode for you guys. So right I'm very, now. very sorry if you hear that. But anyway, back to Jen Maxfield. Yes. So she was an amazing guest and her book more after the break is out now. You could get it. It will definitely touch you. I mean, some of the stories, like you'll be crying crying. and some some will just, you know, just some are feel good, but they're all really feel good because yeah, 
It shows resilience of the human spirit and why people welcome them into her home. And the way, you know, like she said, sometimes she was crying on the other side of the camera, but she's telling everyone else's story and it's not about her. So sometimes, you know what? It's not about us people. No, exactly. And journalists do have hearts. They do. They just can't always show them. So I just think they're here to report the news. Yes, they are. And I'm just, I'm so impressed. Like, I'm yes, I'm so away. impressed. I'm so, I hope everybody just falls in love with Jen the way I did when she was 17 years old because she is the most amazing woman. So please follow her at her website, jenmaxfield.com. Yep. And reach out to her also if you have questions, because like she said, she's accessible. Reach out to us if you have career questions, if you have things you want to be mentored. Like, reach out to people. That should be listeners' homework today. Reach out. Reach out to people. Don't be afraid. Don't think you're bothering someone because you're not. And do your networking. And do your networking. All right. You have homework, people. Yeah. Go. Goodbye. (laughs) Thanks for listening. And if you love the podcast, don't forget to leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts. Follow me at The Real Margaret Josephs. And me at The Life of Mrs. B. And the podcast at Caviar Dreams Tuna Fish Budget. Tune in every Wednesday for new episodes. Keep Keep dreaming, dreaming, caviar dreamers. dreamers.